Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Hi Claire. Hi Marjorie, how are you? Fine, where are you? I'm sitting in the Open Book office. I've escaped homeschooling uh, and left all the kids to it in the house. Uh, and I'm not technically breaking any social isolating rules because it sits at the bottom of my garden. It's a bit cloudy here today, but it's lovely and peaceful. Uh, well, here, I'm not doing homeschooling because our kids have broken up and they're all teenagers, so they're all still in bed. But I'm holed up in my own bedroom as a kind of office. It's a strange thing to work from your bed. It was a dream a few weeks ago and now it's getting to be quite a pain. But I'm holed up in my bed and um, listening to the birds outside. It's lovely. So we're going to start our very first uh, open Book Unbound podcast, which is really exciting. Obviously, all of our in-person groups have had to shut during this period of lockdown. In all the places that we're in, sadly, in prisons and in refugee centers and hospitals and other places. But we've put together what we're calling Open Book Unbound, which is a weekly newsletter of texts, short stories, poems, creative writing prompts, links through to online groups if you want to zoom in and join one of our shared reading online groups or um, creative writing groups lots of other opportunities some links to our terrific writer in lockdown jan carson who's writing us a postcard story every week which is material that we love normally in our regular groups and some questions to go with that so check that out but what we're also doing is claire and i are getting together every week from our respective lockdown locations and running a little group between us so for the very first one, we've decided to use something from the Freedom Papers, which is a terrific set of essays that the Edinburgh International Book Festival commissioned last year. Just the title itself feels appropriate. Today, we're going to start with a piece called An Antisocial Ride by Lee Craigie. And I think Claire is going to start us off with reading. My life is not usual. By that, I mean, I don't hold down a nine to five job. I don't have children. I don't stay in the same place for long. I ride my bike. I pack two small bags. One I sling under the saddle. It contains my clothes, some food, a small titanium pot. The other I hang from my handlebars, into which I pack tightly a sleeping bag, an inflatable sleeping mat, and a bivy bag. Strapped to the top of this bag is an accessories pouch containing small essential items like my passport, wallet and phone. In the neat frame pack that sits in above the bike pedals are my toiletries, electrical cables, lights, bike repair kit, a stove and some camping gas. I don't carry a rucksack. I don't need to. I wear a loose-fitting bamboo t-shirt because I like the way it feels when the wind ripples through its fine, silky fabric. It's always the same one. Blue. I wear boxer shorts underneath loose-fitting shorts. They are black, with a slight sheen to them on the parts that have been continually rubbed over my saddle. When my bum fits onto the saddle, my feet find the pedals, and my hands grasp those particular spots on my curving handlebars. My body remembers what to do, and before I have to make any effort at all, I am rolling. 
Soon, I begin to feel the resistance against forward motion. Not in a negative way, just an aliveness in my muscles and tendons. I feel the familiar pressure through the soles of my shoes and the palms of my hands. I can feel the wind on the parts of my body that I'm pushing through the air ahead of me. My body and bicycle sing to each other, and we hum along the trail in companionship. This image of me on my bike is conjured up from my own mind's eye, but it's probably not dissimilar to that which a passerby would see. That's me moving through space with unencumbered, unadulterated, loose-limbed and unfettered freedom. So the first thing that comes to mind when you're reading this, Claire, is how do you fit everything you need on a bike? You know, like a little piece of metal. Is it really possible? And would either of us want to? I'm not really sure. And the things that she doesn't take. I mean, for me, there's not a book in there. Yeah, you know, for me, uh, like a notebook, right? I mean, how are you, even like, I've got to have a notebook next to my bed so that I can write down all the stuff that I'm thinking about in the night or what I need to do or what would you do if both hands were occupied and you couldn't do that? She didn't have a pen. She didn't, she didn't list a pen. But also like the idea that you only have very spare things. Like how does she listen to the news? How does she get the news? I'm just trying to think of all the things that you miss. How do you have snacks, treats? In this time of lockdown, it feels like it's an entirely, our days are centered around what we're eating and the treats. Like, yeah, how does she know that she's going to be able to get the next bit of food in. I would definitely have a bar of chocolate in there. <laughs> See that bit where she talks about the essentials? Yeah, I wonder. Like I was thinking, I don't know about you, but in the lockdown, it's been a time of clearing out the backs of old cupboards and drawers. And and I think probably because of my own history and having started again as a young child and, you know, left everything in Iran, I, you know, we did end up having to start again. And my parents are so spare about what they keep. So when, it, when we're clearing up now and going through these drawers, my instinct is always to think, why have we kept all this junk? Why do we need it? Are we ever going to use it again? This sort of life appeals, even now in lockdown, when I kind of think, why do we, why do we need all this stuff? I think the lockdown definitely gives you a focus on simplicity and on really thinking about, you know, what's important and the things that two weeks before lockdown were causing me stress, now seems so irrelevant. But I think there is comfort in the familiarity of surrounding yourself and things that take you back to memories of, you know, happy memories and nice places you've been and times that you did things that you've really enjoyed. And I think I would struggle not to have those physical reminders around me. It's funny though, because when I, I, I would say that too, although I'm much less of a keeper, I would say probably because of, again, kind of le losing so much as a kid and then my parents and my brother being in that instinct of getting rid of things. But when I go on big trips, particularly when I go to the States to visit family for a month or so at a time and take one suitcase, my instinct at the end of that month isn't, gosh, I can't wait to get back to my things. It's always, why do I need a house full of stuff? Like, I don't want any of the other clothes that I have because actually I've managed to live a month without them. So my instinct is probably the opposite, which is to pare down, pare down, pare down. But even for someone like me with my own history, this idea of getting everything you need on a bike sort of sends me into a kind of panic. I used to worry when I couldn't fit everything I owned into my car as a teenager. 
like when I finally hit law school, I think I thought, okay, I can't fit all my belongings in a car. And that sort of was a moment of panic. But the idea of actually fitting onto a bike sends me into a kind of real worry. Here's a funny question about this text that I wondered about. She is talking about the way that she's, it's the way that she imagines herself, like this description of herself is the way that she imagined herself on a bike. But by the description of what she's taken with her, she doesn't seem like the kind of person who would imagine herself on a bike, if that makes sense. Like, she doesn't seem like a person who would stop in front of a mirror or, you know, be concerned about the way she looks. But So I think it's a funny thing to say that it's the image she has of herself. It completely reminded me of a time when I, when my children were little and really got into skiing. And I didn't learn to ski till I was an adult and I was dreadful. So I went off and did a couple of days on a ski course so that I could um, basically keep up with them. And part of that was being videoed skiing so, so that the instructor could say, right, this you need to change this or you need to do that. And I had, in my mind's eye, I was swishing down the hill like Franz Klammer or some amazing skier. And when I saw an image of myself, I literally looked like I was trying to drive a bus down the mountain. <laughs> and so it made me wonder when I read this, gosh, I wonder how close her mind's eye image is to the reality. And if that's really what she looks like. Because it's quite a romantic description of herself, isn't it? With the wind going through her hair and her bamboo shirt and... Yeah, I recognized what I, I recognized was that kind of um, resistance because as a runner, I was thinking yesterday, the first mile is always the hardest. The first mile is my body going, why are we doing this? Let's go home. There's tea and cake at home. Why would we do this? So I recognize that even though I'm someone who's run most days in the last 18 months and long, long distances, the first mile is that terrible kind of my body going, yeah, no, this is a really bad idea. But I wonder, did you ski differently when you knew you were going to be videoed? No, I was just too busy trying not to fall over. (laughs) All my focus was getting to the bottom without her having a video of me going tumbling down the mountain. But I tell you what was really interesting was how helpful it was in correcting. Mm. So before the video, the ski instructor had been explaining to me what she wanted to do. You know, the shoulder needs to point down the mountain or whatever it was. And I could have sworn that's what I was doing, but she kept asking me over and over to do it. So obviously I wasn't. Um, And then when I saw the video, I suddenly understood exactly what it was that um, I wasn't doing right. And so the next day I was able to sort of improve that a bit. I was just thinking actually in this case, I mean, in your case, it matters. But I was just thinking maybe in this case, what she thinks she looks like is what actually matters for her as someone who's alone on a bike cycling through maybe our own view of what we look like and who we are is actually the important thing rather than what other people see us as particularly if you're someone who's so kind of in a bubble and experiencing the world not through other people so maybe that maybe it doesn't matter whether that's what she really looks like maybe her view of herself is the important bit shall we read the next bit and maybe she'll give us a sense of what the heck she's up to or what she's actually doing on this bike i'll go ahead and read the next little bit To propel myself on a bicycle carrying all the equipment I might need to eat, sleep and survive and doing so only using my heart, lungs and muscles screams satisfaction at the top of a rather feral voice. At the end of the day, with body tired and relaxed, I'll roll out my bed wherever I choose. I'll boil water to make dinner and eventually settle to sleep replete in a way that is just not possible under most other circumstances. And what's going on in my head to allow this to happen? 
nothing, devoid of choice and any external stimulus other than that which is hitting off my skin or filling my nostrils or ears, I experience a calm contentment in those fine, fragile moments, and my busy mind turns itself in a tight circle and curls up in the bracken with its tail over its nose. I'm not oblivious to the privilege of all of this. I'm acutely aware of the difference between freedom from and freedom to. I know there are people in this world unable to do what I do, people incarcerated, paralyzed, or oppressed. Yet I resent people calling me lucky. I've engineered my life this way, and in doing so, I sacrifice money, relationships, and a sense of belonging, of watching projects develop and grow without me. With freedom comes choice, but with choice comes inevitable, inescapable loss. Minute explosions of grief in choosing this road to ride and not the other, this thought to mull and not the other, the blue t-shirt and not a different colored one. So perhaps this freedom I seek in my privileged way is actually the restricting of choice and the limiting of loss. Can we stop there? Because I think there's quite a lot there to get yeah, sure. to talk about. I'm really interested in this idea of privilege. I don't know if you think of this as a privilege, if you would like describe this as a privilege, Claire. The privilege is the choice, isn't it? I think in this context, the two are totally interchangeable. The privilege is, for me, is for her being able to say, right, I'm not going to do any of the things that may be considered norms of society. I'm going to do my own thing. And that's where the privilege sits. Yeah, I mean, my first response to that was, oh, she is able to do these things. And there are more than more than the people she's denominated who aren't able to do them. People who have responsibilities. And okay, she's chosen not to have children or family or whatever. But lots of us have parents that we're looking after and neighbors that we're looking after. We've built these kind of web of support systems. And if we if we pull ourselves out of them, particularly in times like this, we're really aware of the of what might fall down, if that makes sense. So I think it is a kind of privilege. And I think it is a kind of luck to be find yourself in a position where nobody else is reliant on you. I don't think you can necessarily engineer your life that way, but, but maybe I'm wrong. I've always been interested in this idea of making your own luck. My sister is forever being called lucky because opportunities come her way and she gets to do exciting, good things. But if you drill down into how those opportunities came to her, most of the time it's because she's worked really hard. So I think there's a little bit of making your own luck. Yes, you need the tide with you, for sure you do. But I think there's a little element of it within your own control. It's funny because I've really noticed that in the last sort of few, or maybe month, when my oldest has had offers from universities and everybody's response is, isn't he lucky to have something, to have choice, you know, to have, to have had these offers, that's so lucky. And my, I have to stop myself saying, yes, of course he's lucky, but also he worked his tail off for years. So, you know, yes, of course yeah. he's lucky that he, that a few have offered him places, but also it's all embedded in years and years of maths homework and piano practice and whatever else. So yeah, I think you're right. I think there is that. But I think there are lots of people who have life circumstances that wouldn't allow them this kind of freedom, yeah. which, you know, I think maybe she doesn't acknowledge. I think it, it is, there is a little bit of, you know, um, 
you're in a situation where other people aren't super reliant on you so you can do this. The other thing I think is really interesting in this bit is this idea of grief and choice. Even the road that you choose to cycle on or the thoughts that you choose to think. I mean, even this person who has all the time in the world relative to people like you or me who have engaged with other people all the time is having moments of grief because she's chosen to spend her time not thinking about something. That kind of blows my mind. Yeah, I mean, I've always had a bit of a hesitation about closing doors and limiting choice. And and I've always wanted to try and keep as many doors open as possible for as long as possible. I mean, obviously, you, you there comes a point where you have to make decisions from what degree you study to what job you go into. But I'm forever saying to my children, oh, keep keep your options open, keep your options open. Uh, I'm not quite sure where it, where it comes from, but I think it's just that it's that idea of being being sad when a door closes and you will no longer be able to have the option to take that choice I always used to say to my kids when they were doing sport I would love you to be pretty mediocre at loads of sports and not exceptional at any because as soon as you become exceptional at one sport that's you having to shut down loads of doors yeah and I think increasingly in life now I mean I think when maybe even it was different when we were young there was a path you know you had to get on a path kind of escalator and there was no getting off but I think now you get to make lots of different choices throughout your life you can have lots of different careers you can do lots of different things so I think even if one of our children or we wanted to get on a bike and go somewhere for a year there would be the opportunity to pick up and change over in a way that there just maybe wasn't 20 years ago you know that kind of and that that instinct to keep everything open is still drilled into us in a way that maybe it won't be for our children you know maybe they'll maybe they'll get to do things like this and then decide to have a diff- be a doctor or, or be a writer or do whatever they want in a way that just wasn't a choice for us. Um, shall we finish it off? Yeah, shall I read the last section? Yeah, would you mind? Great. Today I'm riding south. I've switched my phone off and sealed it in a plastic bag. In doing so, I liberate myself from the choice of opening up connections with others and having at my fingertips a world of information on my whereabouts, the weather and current affairs. I don't know where I'll sleep tonight or what I'll find when I get to the next corner. I still my mind from its insistence that I need to know what's coming next, what others are thinking and what they might want to communicate to me. Technology offers liberation at the touch of a button but it also restricts and narrows the workings of my mind. My phone is my lifeline, my anchor to the world as I spin through it in a liberated, directionless whirlwind. Putting it away both cuts me off and sets me free, but it's not as easy as that. Out there, the world still turns and pulls with it the weight of expectation. This is what I am part of, whether I like it or not. Whether I choose to remain connected or not, the world still expects it of me, assumes my mind will travel at the speed of a fibre optic internet connection. Even with technology at arm's length and my phone switched safely off and tucked away deep in my frame bag, I'll find evidence of it behind the vacant, flitting eyes of the people I encounter along my travels. Our world is changing inside and out. By carrying burdensome expectations of immediate gratification everywhere we go and the possibility of unimaginable choice in nearly everything, 
it's hard to stay present in the tussle of an unexpected, aimless conversation with a stranger on a bicycle. Conversations in my travels have become shorter and less meaningful. If we move through life unconsciously knowing that at any time we can receive instant gratification at the touch of a button, then slowly our brains become dull and our curiosity drains like an iPhone left in the cold, eventually switching itself off. A bit gloomy? Maybe it's not true. Surely technology and exploring by bike go hand in hand. The possibilities that modern-day GPS units and freeing mapping software open up mean more remote places can be explored with confidence. Conversations can be conducted between people of different cultures. Travellers can keep moving but remain connected to those they love as they do so. And information is available for everyone at the touch of a button. It's progress. There's a reason I've chosen to switch my phone off and bury it in my bag, rather than throw it away after all. I don't have an answer. I suspect my mother would say something about exercising moderation, and, let's face it, our mothers are usually right. They also come from a generation that is being left behind by an exponential acceleration of technological advances. But depending on how you look at it, they have both freedom from and freedom to. As the years roll on and I find my body less and less able to ride bikes hard, fast and long, my mind becomes less agile in its darting between ideas and it begins freezing at the thought of posting to social media. I'll find a new freedom in the restrictions of ageing. There's always something to look forward to. Well, let's just start with the fact that mothers are always right, right? Yeah. She says usually. I think we can finish there, can't we? No more to add. (laughs) She says usually, but I would amend that to always. I was really taken with this idea that she switched her phone off. So I had this image of her, you know, everything she needs on her bike, all the food. She doesn't know where she's going to sleep. A real wanderer, a real traveler. And yet, even when she switches her phone off, the expectation doesn't end. She still feels that she's connected and feels probably, I would feel that the expectation is mounting the longer she leaves it off. So it doesn't feel like freedom to me. I don't know if you would feel that. It reminds me of what you were saying earlier about creating that social web of responsibility that we would find it hard to extract ourselves from with neighbours and families and and that her, her choice isn't really a true choice because even though she describes herself as not having these connections, I find it really difficult to believe that there aren't some sort of web of connections connection that that she still has to honor and she still has an obligation to and and that bit about switching off the phone but not really being able to switch it off kind of harks back for me to that yeah and it makes me think too I mean maybe everybody has a different level of this but you know if you have an out of office on your email when you're on holiday you're really aware that you're going to have to spend a huge chunk of time going through it Um, when you get home. Mm. So, so many of us, and I know you're terrible for this, Claire, when you're out of office, you're not really, you're checking in and making lists just to save the amount of time that you need to deal with it when you get back. So I wonder if on some level she's doing the same thing. She's given herself a period of time where she's offline, but she's really aware of the kind of building of expectation or the kind of mountain of what's to come. Or in our case, it would be a mountain. Maybe it isn't for her. 
So it doesn't really feel like a gift. It feels like in the same way that I might switch my phone off and go for a run for an hour. You know, I, ne- I still need to check in at some point at the end of it. And I wonder too, as parents, I'd, you know, that we've grown up with this, this very concrete way of being in touch and being able to track where our children are, being able to get a response from them. I wonder if, you know, our, our mothers would never have had that. So they just would have switched off, you know, saying I've sent, I've sent my child out and told them to come back for lunch. You know, there isn't yeah. that same anxiety. I wonder if it's anxiety producing rather than comforting in some way. I think if you have the luxury of two weeks away, by the time I get to about sort of eight or nine days in, my sort of list making and email checking is kind of abated and I, I am able to switch off. But certainly in those first couple of days of a break, there is that sense of, oh, if I just have a quick look and make a list now, it'll really help my first day back in the office. I don't know about you in lockdown, but I mean, it's inconceivable to be away from my phone now. I mean, even really, I don't even set it down anymore. And that's strange because my children are in the house, but I feel like it's my one way of going out in some ways. It's completely changed the way I see my phone. And I think I'm feeling it particularly because my dad and my sister are in Australia. So we've got the time difference to contend with. So at the moment, it's not even like, you know, by sort of half past nine at night. I'm pretty good at turning it off and saying, right, that can all wait till tomorrow. But because uh, because of the time difference in Australia, I'm, I'm, it's kind of in my bedroom, which is breaking one of my mummy rules for sure, having your <laughs> phone in the bedroom. I don't think she, uh, Lee Craig is totally correct in saying that switching off allows her to be liberated and, liberated and uh, disconnected and unconnected. I think she still feels the weight of that phone in her pannier pack. Um, Shall we switch and and finish off as we normally do with um, a poem? So we're going to read a poem by John Glenday, who is one of our favorite open book poets. It's called Landscape with Flying Man. One of the great joys about open book or one of the great funny things is that I tend to pick poems for the text and some groups can't figure out why I've picked them. So they spend some time talking about it. Sometimes they can't work it out. And I'm hoping that's funny rather than annoying, but we can figure out, you can try and see why I picked it. Landscape with Flying Man. I read about him that was given wings. His father fixed those wings to carry him away. They carried him halfway home and then he fell. And he fell not because he flew, but because he loved it so. You see, it's neither pride nor gravity, but love that pulls us back down to the world. Love furnishes the wings, and that same love will watch over us as we drown. The soul makes a thousand crossings, the heart just one. So That's so beautiful, isn't it? I love that last line. The soul making a thousand crossings, but the heart only makes one. It's beautiful, that idea of it. It's just so packed with so many different ideas, isn't it? So the 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 Icarus story popped into my head and then t- as towards the end I was thinking about Buddhism and reincarnation and it's just it's so uh it's such when you see it on paper. It's 10 lines, beautifully spaced on the page. You'll be able to see it for yourself in our newsletter. But it's just it just carries so much to talk about. 
And the lines are in two lines at a time, little couplets, which of course for me is structured that way because it's about two people, you know, one trying to send his son off and, but actually it doesn't work. You know, you're stuck together, you're stuck together. And even the last line is a much longer line. It's that the soul makes a thousand crossings, the heart just one. It's much longer than the others. So as a poet, you might be tempted to break it, but actually, you know, John has stuck them together because for me, that means we're stuck. You know, even if you're trying to separate, love doesn't let you, which is a beautiful kind of way of showing that through the form of the poem. I wondered about that idea that love is the thing that pulls us back down to the world. You know, that it's, because it, the Icarus story doesn't really mean that to me. It is that kind of, for me, it's that kind of teenager or young person thing of wanting to go off and see the world, wanting to get, you know, the prodigal son story, that same story, wanting to get mm. off and see things and maybe getting too close and getting burned a bit. And in, in many ways, it's the same as Lee's story, you know, wanting to go out and see the world. But then mm -hmm. there's still the same connection back. You know, what's the thing that's pulling us back? And it's for me as well, it's the, the, the expression of love is being the letting go. And I think as, as having, a, having a child who's, you know, you're the same, Marjorie, I know, approaching that stage of life where they're looking at universities and they're looking at leaving, uh, uh, this poem really resonates with me because I, I, I'm excited for him. I'm excited for his opportunities and what's to come. But at the same time, there's a little bit of me going, oh, no, I'm not ready for this. I'm not ready. But the greatest act of love is, can be, is, is, is you know, for me is when I'm saying to him now, now don't apply to Edinburgh University because you would then be staying at home. When in my heart, I'm really saying, yeah, go to Edinburgh, keep your bedroom. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But actually, as they near that age, I recognise in myself, you know, I, I can see what I was like at that age and that need to go out and need to. And in some ways, you understand the love better when you're burned and come home. You know, a couple yeah, of times at me, sure. I got in the car and drove home in the middle of the night. Um, I don't know why. I can't remember. I wasn't having a particular crisis. I just suddenly had that kind of, I just need to go home, you know, and be home for a day or so and then I'll be fine. Um, and maybe I was burned by something. I can't remember. I, I just remember the drive in the middle of the night. I had never thought of Icarus as a kind of prodigal son story, but I think it must be in some ways giving permission, giving the, the wealth or the wings mm, or whatever and setting yeah. them out and then pulling, you know, that love pulls you back. I worry about the line that love watches over you as you drown. That's the one line I'm not sure about. For me, that's the, the letting them get burned and not intervening. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the love and letting them make mistakes. That's really Even though your, your instinct is never to want your child to be hurt or never to want your child to be, to have a bad day. You know, they've kind of, you know, they've kind of got to have that bad day. And then the last line, the soul making a thousand crossings. From for me, I don't know if it's true for you, it's that I mean it's Lee's thing that she's making a thousand crossings every day. She's crossing into different counties and crossing across different people and you know that we we are constantly crossing over, but that the connections with someone or you know, with people, the heart never never cuts those crossings, you know, never cuts those ties. I don't know if you read it that way or do you think of it as kind of Buddhism and reincarnation? And um, I think when I read it before um, on its own, it was that sort of idea of, you know, your soul comes back, but your, your heart remains true. Um, but I think 
because we've been chatting today and you've been talking about sort of webs and responsibilities and connections through life I, I wonder if it is that that idea that your soul can make jumps from one thing to another but once your heart's made a connection that's the connection made I think that's definitely what it what it means for me that it's no matter what we go through and all these sort of crossings whatever they might be your heart's set and it's certainly true as a parent isn't it you know that's it there's nothing your child could do to make you change that connection yeah and look, going back to Lee's work, I don't think, you know, I think she might be making a mil- you know, a thousand crossings every day, but I, I'm sure that her connections of her heart still tr- hold true. And I suspect that's why she's carrying that phone, you know, because she needs to be able to check in whether she thinks she's separate from them or not. She, she still strikes me as a person who needs to check in. And she's even saying her mother's right. So there's obviously a connection still there too. So shall we stop there and maybe ask a couple yeah. of questions of, of you? We wondered if you would get in touch and let us know what you think about the story, but also about our chat. You can tell us if we're wrong or if you're right or if you agree. We had a couple of questions. One of the questions I had about the story was just to know if you like the idea of the sound of that. Would you like to get on a bike and just keep going? Have you ever done something like that for a, a sort of an extended period of time? I'd love to hear about it. And I'd like to ask as well what you think about the idea that we make our own luck and tell us about a time maybe that you feel you turned things around, you made your own luck or or maybe an occasion when you did everything within your power, but the luck was just against you. You can um, drop us an email or tweet us um, or send us a message on our Facebook page. The email address is info at openbookreading.com. And we're hoping that we'll collect up all your thoughts and questions and ideas and round them up the next time we speak to you. You can also find last week's newsletter and all the information about our Unbound program, which is Open Book in Lockdown, at our website, which is www.openbookreading.com. And it's in the Unbound section. You'll find podcasts, the newsletters, and Jan's writing as well. So that's another way to access what we're up to in this period. I I was just going to mention that we're using Zoom to set up some groups, shared reading and creative writing groups, and all the information is in the newsletter. But please, please, please don't be put off by the thought of using Zoom. We've included an easy guide on how to do it, and I had no idea how to use Zoom until last week. And I've successfully managed to do it a couple of times this week, including a Zoom meeting over a glass of wine with a couple of friends last Friday night. So I would definitely recommend in these lockdown days, getting yourself up to speed as it were on Zoom. And we're really happy to help you with that. We're hoping those groups will grow and that we'll have lots of different Zoom groups meeting to talk about different things. So please join us if you fancy it. And that's it for our very first Open Book Unbound podcast. It's been a delight to be in your ears and we hope to be back with you again soon. Bye.